Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 17th, 2023. It's time for That Was The Week. That Was The Week is usually a Friday show, sometimes a Saturday, not though a Sunday. And the reason for it is I've been rather global this week. I was just in Manila in the Philippines uh, at a conference with Maria Ressa uh, and the Rappler gang. So I'm just back and I couldn't resist doing a show. And as it happens, Keith is not acting global. He's thinking global. That's the title of this week's uh, That Was The Week newsletter. Why Think Global? China ships and airplanes. And he blames me for this. He says that I wasn't allowing him to talk about nation states, but he's defiantly going ahead anyway. Why is it my fault, Keith? No, I'm not blaming you, Andrew. I'm just acknowledging that, you know, the, the discussion of nation states isn't one you normally welcome. I don't mind talking about nation states. I just think you use it as a term to describe any kind of government you don't like. I really describe it for small thinking. Um, it, it seems to me that just as institutions, nation states, which are the, you know, historically been the biggest thing we've ever known, are now too small to be able to govern. The, 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 the non-national elements of human life are so all-encompassing that a nation state is an inappropriate control or regulation point uh, because it hasn't got the ability to deal with all the variables. So I think one of the issues for me is, I don't know how you use the term. So is China a nation state, even though it's really more of an empire, many different nations? Is, is Russia a nation state? Is America a nation state? Everything is a nation state that is formally recognized by the UN. So, so yeah. your piece this week addresses this issue of globalization and deglobalization, and shall we say de deglobalization? Um, and it works off an interesting piece from Noah Smith, um, suggesting that the next phase of globalization is going to be, and I'm quoting him here, it's a very Silicon Valley kind of word, awesome. What's the debate, Keith, on globalization? What are most people thinking these days? Well, there isn't a simple answer to that because there, there, there's at least two major lines of thought. And, and it right, goes right down to the meaning of the word. Uh, globalization is used by many people, including, for example, Trump, as a pejorative, that it's, um, uh, it, it represents people thinking beyond their country um, in, in a way that puts their country second. And it's often associated with um, uh, bigotry, like anti-Semitism, where globalization equals um, external control by unknown actors, like uh, George Soros, for example. Uh, so there's a pejorative use that combines uh, bigotry with nationalism uh, and a hatred of tech, big tech, uh, and, and capitalism in general. Um, and then there's... And free, and free markets, essentially. Free, free market capitalism, because 
yeah. markets in contrast to the physical reality of passports and territory and seas and land part the markets don't necessarily acknowledge those kind of geographical boundaries right and then there's there's a, a more positive use of the word which is um the human race grow, becoming um uh, where progress is focused on things that represent global change the internet being a great example uh cross-border money flows travel airplanes um the ability to FaceTime people all over the world, global structures which um, have broken through any kind of constraints that history and geography may previously have given to the local um, experience of a human being. Human beings can now experience things way beyond their local uh, sense. And then in the middle, there, there, there's a, the challenge, which is, um, well, if we're more and more global, uh, how does democracy survive? because the, the democracy's unit is a nation state, elections and national or local. So that gives rise to all kinds of questions about what does democracy look like the more global we become. And, and I think all of those issues lead to there being many points of view and people find it hard to disambiguate economics of globalization, the politics of globalization uh, the social implications of globalization and the military implications of globalization in like a four-layer cake. And, and to me, they're all related, but they're different. So we live in the age, or we did live in the age of globalization from maybe the 1970s uh, through to the beginning of the, certainly the first couple of decades of the 21st century what why do you think as and this is debatable but there's some truth to it why is globalization stalled is it simply because of a uh populist nationalism whether it's a a, a, a trump or a modi or, or the chinese or even a joe biden assuming that yeah economics is really ultimately a zero-sum game yeah i i think what happens and, and we've seen it for the last 150 years is that globalization stalls when the self-interest of great powers becomes, um, uh, you know, to fight with uh, its peers. Uh, and when that happens, national interest gets to dominate politics in a, in a stronger way. The root of that is economic failure. So, so as your economic situation deteriorates, even if only relatively, and you see rivals challenging you, you tend to become, at the political layer, much more introspective, you know, one, one nationist. And um, the whole MAGA thing, make America great again, implies that it's no, no longer great. And that idea that it's no longer great comes from economic uh, underpinnings like the so there are real there are realities of the globalized world where some maybe not nation states I, i'm not keen on that word some states or some parts of states do well others don't i mean you can think of brexit for example 
parts of the UK have done very badly out of the reaction to globalization, whereas other parts, I think London, doesn't seem to have been impacted. So there are winners and losers, Keith. Not everyone is a winner in globalization, are they? No, in, in fact, um, um, uh, you know, what, if, you, if you divide globalization into two types, uh, a kind of a political class top-down style, which the EU parliament is, is, is a, a, a good example of, um, when elites get together and decide to create institutions at a higher level of abstraction, um, you could argue that Brexit happened because of the ordinary people's negative reaction to being governed from too far above by an alien, um, you know, not representative institution. So ordinary people experience globalization negatively, but they also experience economic decline negatively, uh, which, which fuels nationalism as well. And both things are true at the same time. And the, the only real um, way to prevent deglobalization is self-confidence in people. And self-confidence in people is super hard if economics isn't making it possible. Well, you're, you're originally from uh, a, a working class part of England, uh, Scarborough. I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing the most people in Scarborough voted against uh, the EU. They voted in favor of Brexit. Were they voting as nationalists or were they voting as globalizers? Because, of course, on the one hand, as you suggested, they're voting against the top-down bureaucracy or technocracy of the EU. On the other hand, they're, they were, in theory at least, voting for the idea of, of Britain going it alone and becoming the Singapore of Europe, which is a very globalized, a, a very globalist idea. Yeah, I, I think they were mainly uh, mixing up several different things at the same time. I think it'd be very hard to find people that only had one answer to that question. Uh, I do think that there was a, <clears throat> a kind of a somewhat democratic sense of resistance to the EU parliament. I also think uh, there was some anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, not in everyone, but certainly in some people. Uh, I also think that there was almost no optimism about Britain as a global player outside the EU. It was a much more introspective decision. And I would say that what I describe bottoms-up globalization, led by uh, innovation and technology, almost nobody believes in. Uh, I think I'm quite rare. Uh, well, what about Smith? So this the reason I don't always like talking about nation-states on our show is because it's supposed to be a show about techno technology and this week in technology rather than this week in politics. But what does Smith say? What, why is the next phase of globalization going to be awesome? Is he suggesting that deglobalization is a myth? No, he, he starts with, the, with a good idea, and that is that um, globalization is permanent but takes different forms from time to time. And uh, he looks at the specifics of the current world with a rise, demographic rise of India, Nigeria, actually, uh, uh, Indonesia, parts of Asia, uh, and the shift in general of uh, value and money from uh, America to Asia. 
Right, and he, he he begins his piece, and the piece is called The Next Phase of Globalization. It's going to be awesome in Noah's opinion. And I'm quoting him here. The G2 summit, uh, sorry, the G20 summit, not G2, the G20 summit in New Delhi felt like the dawn of a new era in both global economics and geopolitics. So do you agree with him? I mean, aren't these things just marketing events? Well, they are, but marketing is an, is the superficial expression of strategy so underneath marketing once you unpeel it each nation has a strategy um and you know biden right now is desperately trying to befriend india to stop china being india's best friend and china and india are at loggerheads over borders but are together in brick and if you look at the expansion of the BRICS from three, from six to 12 countries, um, you start to see uh, a different world beginning to take shape. Uh, he makes the point, Smith makes the point that, uh, therefore, this isn't really uh, a story of um, the, the retreat into nations, the decoupling of the world, the carving up of the world. What it actually is about is the reintegration of the world around a new center of gravity. And um, what is this center of gravity? Uh, it, you know, he's not super specific, but the implication is that China and India are a big part of it. But China and India are enemies and they offer very different political and economic systems. If you quote him, he says, um, he, he makes the point that the focus of industrial globalization is shifting from China, from China, to India, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Japan, South Korea, um, that there's an opportunity for the US and Europe to invest in those markets, but th th that's where the center of gravity do. And this new wave of globalization, he says, will create opportunities for resource exporters like Brazil and South Africa, to sell materials not only to China but to others. Uh, China won't vanish behind an iron curtain. It will play its own important role in the wave of globalization, investing in and exporting to the next crop of developing countries. So he's really focused on the rise of the much larger developing countries as a, as a place to invest and to export to. That's, that's his definition of new globalization. It, it's fairly forward thinking. He, he may even, from a timing point of view, be saying this a little bit early, but he's probably directionally correct. So there's a, a recalibration of power in the world from North America and Europe to East Asia. But that's still a world of nation states, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, people in Singapore, China, of course. And no one's talking about internationalism here no one's talking about pulling the borders down so why, why is what does this has to do with nation states well so so if you look at the history of nation states it's a history uh from absolute independence through to absolute interdependence so globalization is the word we use for the interdependence of nation states it doesn't mean nation states don't exist it doesn't even mean they shouldn't exist, but it means they're less and less relevant all by themselves. They're only relevant through their relationships to others, and increasingly so. So the, the so world GDP, 
the proportion made up by cross-border values is just grows and grows and grows. So um, that so it's a more subtle discussion. Nation, I personally define internationalism as something a little bit different. It, it's a longer-term word that talks about as nation-states become more and more irrelevant, democracy will rely on global institutions that are accountable, existing, as well as local, but uh, not sure. a so well, I mean, and you, you do a bit of a Steve Gilmore here, and you, you quote John Lennon's, imagine, imagine all the people living for today, imagine there's no countries, but what kind of institutions are these? I mean, the United Nations and, and those sort of internationalist institutions, firstly, they're very much top-down, and secondly, they seem archaic in many ways, often yeah. corrupt and useless and, and I, irrelevant. They never do anything. One of the few things I agree with Donald Trump on is that the United Nations is useless and it's captured, always has been. So Same what, what would be a, a, what's an example of, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving you your little time to imagine what is, what is a concrete example of the kind of institution that will prosper in this in, in the post-nation-state world? To be honest, I think there's only one that is both in existence and has enough of a history to assess it, which is the global institution that manages the internet. It's called ICANN. And if you look at ICANN's structures, it was, it was initiated by um, Esther Dyson and others in the U.S. Department of State as the U.S. Uh, uh, span out control of the internet to this global organization that had no single nation state behind it. And they created something called a multi-stakeholder global organization where nation states are one of the stakeholders, but so are all the people that run the domain name system. So are all the people that do business in the domain name system. And so are us individuals who use the internet. And, and uh, it's a policymaking body. It's not a regulatory body, but it does make policy and it manages change globally through, through discussion and voting. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, it, it's certainly- Yeah, I mean, more... I, I would put the kind of more than interesting. It's, so you're, but it's, it's not convincing, Keith. I have to say, I mean, if, if all you can come up with in imagining a post-nation state world is ICANN, then you can continue listening to John Lennon. It's just, it's so no. what? Well, I, I wasn't really answering the question, what can I imagine? I thought you were asking me whatever. Well, but even if you use ICANN. If, if, if you ask me what I can imagine, I, I think what Brexit tells us, and, and it's not the only example, is that people want local control. You know, there's a strong desire in people not to be governed by alien, external alien bodies, especially top-down ones. So local control is, is pretty big. The stuff that Gary Tan is doing right now in San Francisco to challenge the San Francisco authorities is a great example of the desire for local control. But there's also, from a human point of view, the need to plan a good future. And increasingly, plans have to be global, global in character. So we need to create institutions which can make decisions out beyond and above a nation state. And yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not in any way convinced by this. If you look at the United States, for example, all the challenges are 
internal investment making the U.S. more competitive in the global market. But we shall see. Let's move on. Let's talk some more concrete stuff, Keith. Uh, in addition to thinking global, China chips and airplanes. Uh, what about your essays of the week? What 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 is interesting about this week in tech? Um, a lot, uh, I would say. There there is um, there's a lot of talk about Apple uh, launching a, a twelve terabyte, sixty dollars a month cloud storage service, mm. uh, and Apple Apple. Um, today, uh, the largest amount of cloud storage you can buy from it is two terabytes, which costs, I think, $10 a month. Now, you, it isn't just an issue of terabytes. It's not like bigger. It's also, if I tell you that my entire life's work of video, audio, writing fits in six terabytes, but it doesn't fit in two, um, and you're not typical. I mean, you do more video and more content than most people. And you, you manage it well. You, most people just lose it. Now, the other thing is they announced uh, three-dimensional video on the new iPhone using two cameras instead of one in, in landscape mode. Which is, And they also announced um, lossless raw video. So we, we're getting to the point where the files created are super big. And everyone's going to want to use them because what could be better than a 3D video of your kids on the beach to look at later where you can see the whole thing? So I think what, what Apple is doing is doubling down on its leadership in technology to further grow its already very impressive cloud. So who's going to be, who, who, who is threatened by this? I mean, one company that comes to mind is Vimeo. I spend quite a lot of money to store all my videos on Vimeo, but it would make more sense for me to store them on, on a $60 Apple iCloud. Does this mean that we have a looming clash between Apple and Google? The Google numbers were out this week and their cloud services are doing way better than anything else in the company. Well, except for search. Yeah, but search is in decline and iCloud is not. So that's yeah. the coming business for Google. Yeah, I, I think Apple and Google are direct competitors here, um, absolutely for sure. Uh, Facebook isn't really a player, even though as the technology, no one would think of Facebook as the place to, you know, store their life stuff. Um, and really, Microsoft isn't either. They've got OneDrive and they have a cloud and they're capable of doing it. I just think people don't think of Microsoft uh, as a trusted place either. Dropbox and Box.net are both so big. Yeah, I mean, Dropbox would be directly threatened with this, wouldn't they? Yeah, I would have thought so. Although they're, they're, they're clever, Dropbox. They're building a lot of additional services into Dropbox that little by little, they've got you know a range of features that are close to Apple's, including AI soon. And right, so how would AI be integrated into this? I assume all sorts of interesting AI applications, which could be integrated with your video and your photos. Yeah, I think lots of different ways, but uh, the simple and obvious one is uh, show me everything I've ever written about WhatsApp uh, or said. Uh, AI, given access to files, will be very, very good at retrieval. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And in that sense, then it represents the 
the personalization of search, which is again a direct threat to Google's previously dominant business model. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that that that's a big one. What, uh, Huawei, by the way, it is worth noting that wow, three things about China. Huawei launched a new phone. It's not allowed to use ARM chips anymore, and it turns out China has now built um, its own mobile chip, which is like Apple's a system on a chip. So it's more than just a CPU. And the Mate 60, the phone it launched, is, is world-class, and it's 100% Chinese. Uh, yeah, which, I, I mean, is interesting and in some ways exciting, but it, it doesn't that undermine your argument about globalization? I mean, what we're seeing are two, two rival separate markets, the Chinese and an American market. Well, actually, my, my argument uses this as a, a reason to be aware of nationalism because the, the product of nationalism is that the strong competitor will beat you. And China is not beating the U.S. yet, not even close, but it's being forced to try. And as it forces is forced to try, it will ultimately succeed because it has the resources. Today, they launched a 750-mile-an-hour fast train between Shanghai and Beijing that does the trip in two and a half hours, which is faster than an airplane. Um, and meanwhile, in America, I've just finished reading a really interesting new book by David Le Leonhard the, the, on the death of the American dream. Well, and he, he brings up a lot of the train stuff. Meanwhile, in America, you can't go by it. It takes you more than a day to travel between, new, uh, between San Francisco and L.A. And even the East Coast, uh, the Acceler is incredibly slow compared to that. Yeah. Um, well, we'll come back to China, I'm sure. The reality, though, Keith, is politics and government, they're not going away. Another of your pieces this week is on Musk and Zuckerberg and Gates and others in, in closed Senate session about AI. That's just a reality, isn't it? Well, it, it's interesting because the Senate and Congress in general are super reluctant to get involved in AI because they don't really know how to. And the companies are all super aggressively wanting the government to get involved so that their, their work becomes approved, if you will. Gives them cover. It gives them cover. So you've got this interesting thing where people are begging for regulation. Now, Bill Gurley did a great talk this week. I'm, I'm going to make a video of the week next week. Uh, he did a great talk where he talked about the correlation between regulation and how much money you pay lobbyists. And it's direct. So when Elizabeth Warren goes on a journey of um, wanting regulation, guess who her biggest donors are? Phone companies. Why? Because they want to influence her thinking. Um, yeah, but that, that, that attitude means that no one's everywhere. You're, you're falling into the, the, the Trump rabbit hole of believing the deep state and everything. Uh, there's always some interest behind you still can believe in stuff i mean i don't know enough about warren to know how dependent she is on telco money but i i think she probably believes it there's a lot of interesting people i had simon johnson on the show um co-author of power and progress uh, an acclaimed book he teaches at mit you cite him uh and my interview in the newsletter there's a lot of really interesting work being done in this area keith yeah, and it's inevitable because the question of the future world we want to live in is forced on us by history. 
it's not a question we voluntarily ask ourselves. We ask it because we see all this potential conflict and real conflict, and we see all this economic competition. We, in America at least, people see themselves as former winners. Now they're less sure they're going to be a future winner. So there's insecurity. So these questions are forced onto the agenda of history by, by what's happening in the world. Uh, and there's no avoiding them. So I think Simon is a man of his time, and there'll, there'll be more of them. And, and Fellow Yorkshiremen, Keith, you Yorkshire guys are taking the world over. We've got to be careful. Well, um, we're, we're not even nationalists. We're, we're Yorkshireists. We're, yeah, we're, well, maybe Yorkshire. Well, they've got a cricket team. Maybe they'll have their own government one day. Uh, the, the one case that you, we, we touched on it last week, you didn't have any links. This week, you do have a link on the Google antitrust case. What do you make of it? Well, the attempt is an attempt to accuse Google of, uh, through its search monopoly, uh, acting in an anti-competitive manner in all kinds of other things. Um, the search monopoly is a function of excellence. It's because Google search was and remains good. The misuse of the monopoly is often targeted advertising. But in advertising, Google has many competitors now. It's, it owns about a third, I think, to a half of the total revenue from digital advertising on the internet, including mobile. And it used to be more like 90%. So Google's share is declining. So I think this lawsuit will fail and will cost a lot of money to prove Google to be in the clear. If it doesn't fail, then the implication is Google will be forced to break up. Now, if you look at the breakup of the telcos, when the telcos were broken up, the total market share of the big five was about 50%. Today, it's 80% after the breakup. So regulation and breakup have signally failed to change economics. Are you Borkian in your distaste for antitrust? Do you believe there's ever been an a good reason to have an antitrust case? Because you see a very hard line on this. I don't quite understand why. Well, I, I, I'm very against large companies crushing competition unfairly. So in that sense, you would think I would be pro-antitrust. However, I think the best antitrust is new competitors doing better than the... Well, can you give me a case where you think antitrust work, where you would be supportive of it? I actually can't. Interesting. We'll think about it and we'll have some more next week. Yeah. Startup of the week, Keith. A wannabe, uh, a wannabe monopolist, as Peter Thiel reminds us. All startups want to monopolize their market. Mother Duck, I have to admit, never heard of them. Raised 50 million, valuation of 350 mil. What, who is or what is Mother Duck? So before you understand Mother Duck, you have to understand Duck. So Duck... DB is uh, a piece of software you can run on your computer at home and you can give it Excel files and you can use a language called SQL to interrogate the files as if they were a database and produce uh, good results from complicated data locally. What Mother Duck is, is the ability to do the same in the cloud at larger scale and faster. So it's basically a way for analysts or anyone really with Excel spread files, uh, spreadsheets, to 
turn them into real databases with a real query language. And because we live in a world that's so data rich right now, uh, DuckDB and Mother Duck are finding a lot of customers who are prepared to pay for that service. Um, I tried it. It's very good. I already have a competing service, so I don't need it, but it's really quite good. And finally, Keith, the, we're not going to fall into the T word anymore. We're going to talk about the X of the week by somebody called Michael Kim. Uh, what is Michael saying that caught your, caught your uh, imagination on fundraising and raising money? He's at Sedina Capital. Yeah, Sendana. 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 So Michael is one of the few people who, ha who runs a fund of funds with the goal of giving money to smaller venture funds, funds well under 100 million generally. Uh, and typically, Sendana's funds have been small themselves, 100 million or less. Now they've raised 450 million to keep doing what they do. And it's kind of a sign of the times that early stage investing is widely understood now to be the source of the largest value creation because you are investing early the multiples of your investment are much bigger when they when they when they end up being good investments so sendana have a long history of understanding what a good seed fund looks like including emerging seed managers and so they they now have an endorsement through money to keep doing what they do and i think it's kind of a big deal in this time when money is hard to come by that they've managed to pull this off so i thought it was worth yeah, you slip that in at the end. Usually the last shows over the last few weeks, Keith, would be miserable, the crisis of investment, the price of money. But does this X of the week suggest maybe uh, you talked about seed investing, the, the seeds of a better future, the beginnings of uh, a revitalized startup investment economy? Have we reached the bottom? Very hard to call on that one. I mean, we've certainly reached a stasis. There, there always can be a new bottom underneath the stasis, or it could be a turning point. I think too early to tell. But there, as always, even in the worst of times, new flowers grow. And, and, and I think by focusing on the new flowers, you end up doing well in the near term. So that's Well, speaking of flowers, Keith, if you had to invest either in tech or Manchester United, where would you put your money? Well, Manchester United's share price has been sinking, so it's quite a good investment right now because it will get figured out. And when it does, it'll go back up. 